Maniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and finally, I can announce that the Needless Things Irregulars will be live at Atlanta Comic Con in July on the 14th with Needless Things Presents The Summer of the Bat. And no better place to announce that than on the 1989 episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we were very careful to avoid any discussion of Tim Burton's Batman film. So, this is very exciting for me. This is a new convention for us. Uh, I submitted my idea for a panel. They loved it. They put us on the schedule. So now, you guys, every single one of you, please come out to Atlanta Comic Con. That is Sunday, July the 14th at 1 p.m. It's Building C, Room 110. Uh, It's going to be me, Ryan Cadaver, Nicole Gould, and our pal Ched J. Shonk is flying in from the West Coast just for this panel. That's right. Chad is going to be live and in person here in Atlanta because... For the longest time now, he has been wanting to do anything that we do uh, revolving around the Summer of the Bat. Now, to be specific, this panel is going to be about the pop culture phenomenon surrounding Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie. We'll talk about the movie a little bit, but we're mainly going to be talking about the era of, of mystique and excitement that surrounded the release of the movie from the t-shirts to the shoes to the toilet paper to the magazines to the books to the trading cards it was a marketing there'd never been anything like it before and we're going to be taking a look at all of that live at the atlanta comic-con it's very exciting we want a big turnout for this i'm going to have prizes to give out where you know how we do things we're going to involve the audience in the conversation so please show up ready to share your own memories of the summer of the bat but this is a huge deal for needless things uh if we get a good turnout if we get a good reception this only means we'll have more opportunity to do great live things in the way that only needless things does them so this is a huge part of our needless summer please come out to atlanta comic-con needless things presents the summer of the bat there's an app for the atlanta comic-con you can go in the schedule I haven't taken a look at the app yet. I got all this off the website. Uh, the, the, that's how I knew I was able to finally officially announce this. Uh, but download that app, and if you can uh, you know, put that panel in your schedule, do so. It'll show them that there's interest in it and that Needless Things uh, deserves a, a slot and future slots in their programming because we want to get out and do all the live stuff we can to entertain the people and also record podcast episodes. So there you go. I'm obviously super excited about that. The other thing I'm excited about is the fact that in just a couple of days here, I'm going on vacation. I'm doing something really weird with this intro that I've never done before, and that's record it two weeks in advance. Because I'm going on vacation, and I, I just I want to get this in the can. I want to do as little as possible while I'm on vacation. So I'm pre-recording this intro. In the past, what I've done is... Uh, I've had the episode, the meat of the episode, as I call it, 
already recorded and then when i get out to wherever we're going i'll sit down with the laptop record the intro post it and do whatever i don't want to have to do all that this time so i'm going to go ahead and and uh get this thing wrapped up i'm actually recording this immediately after producing last week's episode which if you didn't catch it was the beginning of our needless summer and that is a commentary for the life aquatic with steve zisu which was great it was a whole lot of fun i hope you listened to it and also i hope you got the criterion blu-ray to watch along uh that's that's a superior viewing experience i can tell you right now uh, so, what else have we got going on before we get to this week's episode, which, uh, again, is our look back at 1989. Uh, with We do our yearly uh, retro 30 years ago, whatever you want to call them, episodes with our pals Beth, Chris, and Rad Ranger. Uh, they're always a lot of fun. And, of course, we'll do another one with a different cast live from Dragon Con uh, just a couple of months from now. And 1989 was a huge year. It was really tough for me to decide what I was going to talk about for this episode. But we we had a great conversation. We had a great time. I just recorded this thing last night. And uh, it, it could not have gone any better. And I want to thank those guys once again for kind of getting on this short notice because I realized I had to get all of this put together if I was going to have it done before I left town. Got a lot of great posts. Uh, well, for me, they're coming up. For you guys, they're already posted. So all you have to do is go to needlessthingspodcast.com and check out the last two weeks' worth of posts to see what I've been working on. There are a couple of special mini-casts that went up, uh, if everything went according to plan anyway. Uh, there's some new toy reviews, lots of exciting stuff going on because I, I wanted to do as much prep as I could prior to this trip so the site and the podcast wouldn't... Uh, be sitting there getting stale while I was off having fun on the longest vacation I've had, I think, in the last 14 years. Pretty exciting. So uh, there you go. I don't have a whole lot else to say because I'm recording this so far in advance. But again, please do check out Atlanta Comic Con. Come out to that Summer of the Bat panel. It's going to be awesome, I promise. Uh, And Dragon Con is right around the corner. Lots of big things I want to announce for that uh, as soon as I possibly can. But as you guys know, we, we don't really get into that until we start having those guys on the show, which will begin in August. We will we will be in full force Dragon Con time. Although, that doesn't mean we won't have a needless commentary. We've already got one planned out. Our July commentary, uh, that poll might still be running at this point. Uh, if you go, if you go and join the Needless Things podcast Facebook group, uh, there is a there is a poll. I th- I think I'm having a little trouble with my uh, temporal uh, movement right now, but there should still be a poll where you can decide which big blockbuster the Needless Things are regular the uh, the Needless commentary team are going to watch for July. It's going to be a big old Needless Summer movie, and uh, you guys get to pick. So go check out the Needless Things podcast Facebook group. Get on that. Uh, Follow me as Phantom Troublemaker on Instagram. Follow Needless Things as Needless Things Podcast on Instagram. And and really, those are your best places to keep up with everything that's going on. Uh, There's probably going to be a whole lot of uh, video, a lot of going live, I still don't particularly want to commit to YouTube, but I would like there to be a little more permanence to some of the the live stuff that me and Phantom Jr. are working on now. And uh, 
And that's another thing I'm excited about is it's it's looking more and more like Phantom Jr. is getting to the point where he's going to be taking a little bit more of an active part in the show. Not, not as much... Uh, on screen, so to speak, but a little behind-the-scenes stuff he's interested in working on. So that's pretty awesome, too. Uh, so there you go. Without further ado, it is time to sit down and reminisce about the awesomeness of Phantomaniacs, you should know by now that a crucial part of each and every single needless summer is our look back at the 80s. And this year, of course, we're going to party like it's 1989 with our pals, Beth. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Chris from Figures Toy Company. How are you doing, buddy? Doing good. What's up, everybody? We're, we're here for 1989. Now, I will lay down the rules as soon as I introduce our final participant, Mr. Sean Reed, the Red Ranger. Hey, how's it going, everybody? How it's going is the only thing that is off limits for this conversation where we look back at the year 1989 and we each pick some favorites and some not-so-favorites. We cannot discuss the Summer of the Bat. So no uh, no talk about Batman at all because there's so much to discuss about that that uh, that's that 1989 Tim Burton Batman film is going to be the topic of other podcasts down the road. This is going to be bat free. So to start us off today, uh, we're, we're going to be traditional, we're going to be polite, and we're going to let ladies go first. So Beth, what is your first favorite thing from 1989? Well, I'm super glad I get to go first because I had a feeling somebody else might take this because my first pick is UHF. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) (laughs) I had some backups just in case somebody else tried to steal it from me. Um, It is a brilliant movie. It is still funny to this day. I watch it at least once a year. And I'm not the biggest Weird Al fan. I love him and I love what he does. I love his original songs more than his parodies, but this movie, even with its uh, mild, uh, mild racism, is still the funniest thing, and I could watch it over and over again. Uh, Conan the Librarian is still hilarious, Wheel of Fish, Spatula City, all the little bits that he throws in there, all the parodies. It's absolutely what Weird Al does best. I remember... Uh going to a movie theater and and i want to say we were going to see uh maybe it couldn't have been batman because i i think they were too close together but i remember going to a movie theater uh that summer when i was 13 and seeing a big giant stand-up for uhf and that was the first i'd heard of it because back then we didn't have the internet we didn't have like there were entertainment magazines and stuff but i i wasn't reading like entertainment weekly or whatever the equivalent was at the time and uhf probably wasn't going to be covered in starlog or fangoria so that big stand-up 
was the first I knew of it. And it's Weird Al's big giant face with the crazy glasses with the, uh, you know, the whatever the television logos were in them. And I was blown away. I could not believe that my hero, Weird Al, was actually going to be in a movie, was making a movie. And I remember going to the theater to see UHF and just being blown away. Because it's, to me, it's it's very much like along the lines of Airplane and Kentucky Fried Movie and like the Zucker Brothers kind of stuff, except it had, I feel like it's got a very strong narrative. Uh, it, it takes those wacky parody style movies, but it incorporates that into what I think is a fantastic story with a cast that's like really weird and unknown at the time. Like Victoria Jackson was, I think, just kind of getting in her groove on Saturday Night Live and maybe was the biggest name in the movie. Well, and Michael Richards was still in his spaz phase because that was, I believe, around the same time that they filmed. Uh, he did Transylvania 65000, which was another one where he was a complete spaz. So yeah. he was completely unknown then. Yeah, Michael Richards, Fran Drescher, um, just a, a lot of really great finds that put in performances that, you know, in theory, UHF should not be as good as it is. Uh, especially if you, you know, it, when musician to filmmaker is not always the most successful transition, especially if you know anything about Glenn Danzig's new movie, Verotic, uh, which I highly <laughs> recommend you look up reviews online as soon as you're done listening to this. But, uh, oh my gosh, yeah, it's it's apparently not wonderful. But yeah, UHF, it's it's the rare thing that one of your heroes goes off to do something different and new and it not only does it work, but it, it's a classic. I mean, it's an amazing comedy film. Uh, Sean and Chris, do you guys have memories of the time of watching UHF, or were you Weird Al fans back then? I was a huge Weird Al fan growing up. Like, I thought that the parodies were, like, the funniest thing imaginable. You know, I had at least the first four or five albums on cassette because I just thought, you know, obviously I can only watch so much... Um, lowbrow comedy or, or r-rated comedy when my parents aren't around so weird al was the one form of comedy that they would actually pay for for me uh with the movie i feel like being you know eight nine years old when it came out it was a little bit over my head so the appreciation didn't really i didn't really garner an appreciation for it until i got older and could kind of follow the jokes and the references and stuff like that um as a kid it was just kind of like this weird silly movie like i remember when i was a kid i kind of compared it to beetlejuice where i don't really get the overlying themes to it but it still entertained me just because of like the sight gags and the goofiness well and it's funny because there is a similarity i think in uhf to weird al's music in that we were, we were just talking about this earlier today uh with some other phantomaniacs that there were weird al songs when i was a kid that i had never heard the original version like, I heard his parody before I heard the original. So then when I heard the original, I was like, oh, this is weird. What is this? And it's the song he was parodying. And it was the same thing with UHF. I was 13 when I saw it. But there were still some references that I didn't, I wasn't 100% aware of. And that in later years, I'd be like, oh, that's from that. Now I understand. 
What about you, Sean? Uh, to the surprise of, I'm sure, no one, I don't think I've actually seen UHF all the way through. Oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> you are the absolute worst. I know. It's what I do. Clearly, we need, to, clearly we need to schedule that for a commentary. Uh, yeah, that would probably work. That's how I watch most things, because I'm, <laughs> I'm only three years old, because um, I'm a robot that hasn't seen anything. No, I I remember it being huge, and I remember a lot of my friends seeing it, and I remember running around yelling Spatula City like a lunatic, but I honestly can't remember if I've ever sat down and watched it beginning to end. Um I, I think it's like I've caught parts of it. It was on at parties and all that kind of stuff, but never like actually gave it any sort of attention. Um, so outside of yelling specialist city, I got, I got nothing for UHF. Just to throw this out there for, for any listeners who don't listen to any podcasts other than this one. Uh, I years ago did a promo for the needless things podcast to send to other shows, uh, and it was a, it was basically Spatula City, but for the Needless Things podcast. And I'll, I'll throw that in here at the end of the show so everybody can hear it. Because I've never played it on here before because I don't need to promote this. Unlike the WWE Network, I understand <laughs> that if you're already watching or listening, I don't need to promote to you. <laughs> uh, so awesome. Yeah. Any, any, uh, any final thoughts on UHF, Beth? You know, I... I had seen the complete Al already, and we had stolen it from Blockbuster at this point, and I knew it would be brilliant because the complete Al was so good, but who who knew that Weird Al was going to be such an amazing talent? I, I just can't say enough good things about this movie, and uh, I will watch it for him. Yeah, well, it's mind-blowing that he's the lead and is great like he he carries so much weight in the movie and he pulls it all off and the chemistry he's got with all the other characters is great uh david bow in particular uh i i developed a big fandom for that guy after seeing uhf uh it it's it really is far far better than it had any right to be and and to this day is eminently watchable all right well if that's it for uhf we're going to move on and uh i'm going to go ahead and make my first pick because like beth i have a feeling this one might have gotten taken out from under me if i hadn't jumped in here now and uh i'm going to throw out there faith no more's god uh, damn it <laughs> <laughs> well i lost my number 3 so you get to lose your whichever one this was that was number one. That's uh, all Faith, right. Faith No More's debut major label album, The Real Thing. Uh, my favorite band of all time. Uh, obviously, at this point, this is 1989. I'm 13 years old. MTV is a critical part of my life. I, I learn most of what I know, not from school, not from my parents, but from Adam Curry. Uh, so, MTV plays the video for epic and I, I i mean i can't really define why it got me so much but it did uh Patton's charisma and the cinematography and just the beat of the music it was something very different from everything else that was going on it had it was very catchy but it wasn't like in excess 
uh, it, it really just grabbed me from you know the the second it started playing. So visually and musically, uh, I, I was entranced and went to the the next time I made my weekly or whatever it was visit to our local record store, which was a place called Music Drome, uh, which is the other place where I learned everything that I know. Uh, the local mom and pop record store where you walk in and you say, I just saw this video from this band faith no more. And there's a guy named Dave. If Dave was working, he'd just kind of look up, look up at you. He, he wouldn't even really say anything and just point to the F's and he was nice, <laughs> but you had to sort of get his demeanor. Uh, if Michael was working, he would get up off the stool. He'd walk you over to where it was. He'd actually pull it out for you and be like, this is the album that song is from. Uh, it also has, if you like that song, this song, this song, and this song, you're going to dig those too. The whole album's pretty good, but like, these are the ones you're really going to dig. Let me know what you think of it next time you come in. And like, that's what that place was. Oh, and then when you came back in and we're like, I did dig that whole album. He'd be like, okay, if you like that, then maybe you want to check out Killing Joke or maybe you want to check out Prong or whatever. Like, that's how that mom and pop record store worked. It was people communicating and discussing, like, you learn about music. That's where it happened. And with Faith No More, I got that first album and... From beginning to end, uh, I can't say I totally loved, um, hang on just a second, I'm terrible about the last track, the slow last track that's incredibly creepy, Edge of the World. Oh yeah, the doo-doo. To this day, I'm a little iffy on that particular song, but everything else, and look, their cover of War Pigs is how I discovered Black Sabbath, because I went back into Music Drome and I'm like, this album is amazing. Well, do you like that song? Do you like track number 10? I was like, yeah, that's great. All right, well, you need to check out Black Sabbath. I've heard of that. What is that? Is that evil? That that sounds like Satan stuff. I don't think my parents will be cool with that. No, it's fine. Here, here's Paranoid. Take that home. Listen to that. Like, that's how it worked. But like I said, my favorite band of all time, this album, still in regular rotation. I listen to it monthly, if not more, uh, later on, Falling to Pieces, which is my favorite song off the album, the video for Falling to Pieces came out and was even cooler than the video for Epic. Uh, I just, I, I adore Faith No More. I love this album. It's so different and weird and fascinating and opens the doors to so many different kinds of music through what it is. Now, Sean... I realize I scooped it out from under you, but <laughs> all that means is that you've got a little something to say about it, too. Oh, my God. Greatest album ever or greatest album ever? Um, I was on my second school in two years uh, in the South after moving from the North and was in the middle of a massive identity crisis. And You're like, do I listen to Leonard Skinner or not? Right. Right, I moved from inner city Pennsylvania to suburban Atlanta and changed schools twice. I was still reeling from the fact that people didn't wear their socks hiked up to their knees anymore. <laughs> and uh, 
So I'm starting school, and I go from one school where I'm a complete misfit to another school where I'm kind of a misfit, but I'm trying to be preppy because I was like, well, those people look like they have friends. And then I see the video for Epic, and I go, that's who I want to be. Yes. And and that began, um, I think, as we said on the, on the podcast we did when uh, the newest album came out, um, I went through my single white patent phase. I immediately, I grew all my hair out on top, shaved it underneath, yeah, yeah. Um, baggy jeans. Uh, baggy jean shorts, baggy t-shirts, stomping around in like Converse and Vans, and uh, talking as nasally as I possibly could. Like, every, and that I remember a buddy of mine. We would get in his car, we would put on "Surprise You're Dead," we would drive fast as hell, reckless as hell, uh, and thank God that song is only like two and a half minutes long because we probably would have killed ourselves or someone else. Um, but that was the thing that was just like that. That was our, our teen angst and rage was to put that on scream those lyrics. Uh, I had friends that were in the jazz band in high school that would play woodpecker from Mars before every basketball game. And I would just sit there cause I was, I somehow had finagled myself. Shiloh didn't have an AV club. And so I was the video recorder for the women's basketball team. And that was like, my AV club because I had AV club up north and we didn't down here and I was like all right well so I was at every basketball game whether I wanted to be or not and uh like it made every basketball game that much cooler for home games when Woodpecker from Mars would come on and I'd be like ah I'm one of three people in this entire gym that knows what the hell is going on it's the most amazing thing in the world so yeah that that sent me down a long path of uh embracing all of my weird uh heavily and um getting rid of all the preppy clothes well, and you mentioned "Surprise, You're Dead," which was featured in the uh, incredible Gremlins Two. Yes, yes, which I did not see when it came out, but then I saw it many, many years later, and I was like, I would have loved this movie when it came out. It's yeah, so dumb. I don't think I saw. I don't think I saw it in the theater. I don't think I saw it until it came out on home video. Yeah, I was much my like like everything else movies. I was super late to that party, but now that I'm there, I'm like I'm preaching the gospel of it as much as possible, and the fact that it has both Slayer. And Faith No More, Surprise You're Dead in it. I was like, okay, this might be the greatest movie soundtrack of all time. <laughs> it's yeah, and I'm I'm one of the people who was shocked to find that people didn't care for Gremlins too. It was one of those things where I was like, wait, people don't like this movie, but now it's come back around to where it's this call, and probably because of the Key and Peele sketch for the most part. Oh, I'm sure um, that's that's how I got introduced to it. It's it's come back around as as a thing. Uh, Beth, I know you have a special relationship with Faith No More. <laughs> I have a special relationship with a husband who has a special relationship with my patent. <laughs> I was aware that this existed at the time, but that was not my style in high school. That was that was not what I was into. And honestly, even after I married a man who is kind of obsessed with Mike Patton. Uh, it's still not my favorite album. It's it's no Angel Dust. It's no album of the year. But as a casual fan, I think I'm allowed to like album of the year because the hardcore fans are like, no, that's crap. <laughs> well, it's I mean, the real thing is the poppiest album. I, it's not my favorite Faith No More album, but, but it is the one that introduced me to them. And, uh, you know, it, it, it set me down the trail, and, and it is the one that everybody knows, too. If you mention Faith No More, you know, your average person doesn't even know there are other albums, but they all know 
epic. Oh, that's the with the fish flopping the around fish. on the thing. The dead fish. They killed a fish in that video, right? Right. Everybody knows that. Uh, what about you, Chris? Any faith, no memories? Uh, yeah, you know, I would have to say out of the four of us, I'm probably the most casual fan of Faith No More. The way that I got into him, much like you, was through MTV. But uh, also, I know I mentioned last year when we were kind of going into uh, the rap fandom that we all had, how I would kind of follow the lead of my cousins as far as getting into music. And on the flip side of that, my uncle on my mom's side, who's actually only 10 years older than me, um, so he was relatively young as I was growing up, and he's more of the rocker, uh, you know, not a total metalhead, but he was into more of the heavier stuff, and he got into Faith No More. So for me, who is slowly getting into the rock side of stuff, used to my cousins playing the rap and the dance music and the pop stuff, Faith No More to me was kind of like the middle ground. Yeah. Like if I didn't want something too rocky and he didn't want something too rappy, he would just throw on the real thing and we'd drive to the store with that playing. And most of the time it was epic because I was a nine-year-old kid. I just kind of went with what was on MTV or what was on radio at the time. But that was my introduction, and I've always found them catchy. It's just that I never – I certainly didn't latch on to them as much as you guys. Um, to me, they're you know remembered. To me, they're on you know my iPod playlist and everything, but – I never went and sought out, you know, every album. I was more or less just about the singles when it came to them. Well, and that is, you know, the real thing is that sort of, uh, you know, lots of artists later on would credit Faith No More, Limp Bizkit and Korn have both acknowledged the influence of the real thing on the type of music that they make. Uh, and and at the time, even, you had stuff like uh, Mike Muir from Suicidal Tendencies, his offshoot band Infectious Grooves, uh, very much had that sort of funk metal sound that the real thing had. Uh, it, it's a hugely influential album. If you look at you know the '90s and on, it, it really was a sound that I'm not going to say they created, but they popularized and certainly influenced a lot of artists going forward. Oh, for sure. That whole, you know, new metal era of the, you know, the rap rock hybrid and stuff like that. You've got, you know, your corn, your Limp Bizkit, all, you know, all those sorts of bands. They definitely owe something to Faith No More. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I think it's time for our next uh, 1989 favorite. I can't claim to completely know what's next, but I trust the people who are handling it to handle it is it, it's time for the thing i think so i was gonna jump in here and talk about how my favorite tv show is saved by the bell all right time out sean wants to do saved by the bell on this podcast that's blasphemy that would be like me doing rad if i tried to do that i'd have a bmx bike tread up and down my back for attempting that he can talk about crew jones all he wants but when it comes to the crew of bayside high I'm the guy. Time in. But I suspect that Chris is going to want to have Saved by the Bell to himself. So what I'm going to do is the gentlemanly thing, and I'm going to go with my number two pick, and I'm going to let him have that. And when it's his turn, he can talk all about how he's all about Saved by the Bell. But I'm going to bring up a show that amazingly is still on the air after forever now, and that's The Simpsons. Um, I remember getting introduced to it when it was on The Tracy Allman Show. And I I don't know that I've seen anything catch fire quite like The Simpsons did. And then the fact that it is still around and still doing new episodes is really mind-blowing and kind of a testament to um, 
the, the creativity of everybody involved. I don't even think it's just the Matt Groening thing. I think it's all of the voice actors and everybody. Um, it's it's weird to me to think that in 1989 I was riding a bus uh, to school and there are kids with Eat My Shorts Man shirts and they're getting in trouble for it. And now you can go to Moe's Tavern at Universal Studios Orlando and order a Flaming Mo, and it's just become such a just such a part of everyday life. Um, and that there are probably still kids getting on the school bus today that might have a Bart Simpson eat my short shirt that is not even a little bit retro. Yeah, I remember watching the tra- – I was a big fan of the Tracy Ullman show. And I I thought it was hilarious. I loved sketch comedy. And th- I remember those Simpson shorts as part of the Tracy Ullman show – like, they were funny, but I didn't love them because the animation was so bad. Yeah, it was really, really bad when that first came out. But it was, at the time, it was a phenomenon. Everybody, people were talking about the Simpsons shorts more than they were talking about Tracy Ullman. Uh, and then when the show itself started uh, with the, what, it was the Christmas special, right? Santa's Little Helper? Uh, yeah, I think so. And it was it the animation looked a little better, but it was one of those inescapable pop culture things that there was no way you weren't going to watch it, even if you didn't care that much. If you were thirteen or or probably anywhere from like nine to eighteen, I would say you were absolutely going to watch the first episode, the pilot, whatever they were referring to at the time of the Simpsons on Fox and also because you were going to watch everything on Fox. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fox was the, uh, that was the channel for us. You know, our parents had the ABC and CBS and we had like the dirty offshoot. How did this get on the air kind of stuff? Like everything on Fox just felt a little grungy. Yeah. And, and at an era where alt, like the entire alty thing was, gradually creeping up to the mainstream it was kind of awesome to have television shows that seemed like what were effectively would become alt comedy we just didn't know that at the time and and kind of all of us getting plugged into it um in in that time period was like oh this is this is different and we like it explicitly because it's different it's not our mom and dad's thing it's not you know it's it's a little edgy it's a little dangerous but yet not so dangerous that it's going to be problematic well i mean it was a label it was very much a label where even if you weren't necessarily interested the fact that it was on fox made it cool um tracy ullman simpsons 21 jump street married with children like all of that stuff was just the coolest shit available and, you know, Simpsons and Married with Children, my parents specifically did not want me watching those shows. So that made them even cooler. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, like the more that you weren't allowed to do something, the more you wanted to do it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Chris, I, you've, you are bound to have some recollection of The Simpsons. Oh, for sure. When The Simpsons first started, I was all in. I had the T-shirts, the buttons, the trading cards. I had uh, a purple Simpsons backpack with Bart's face with quotes all over it. And that was my fifth grade backpack, 
I believe at the time. Um, yeah, I was all about it. I thought it was the greatest thing. I was recording episodes. I fell off The Simpsons probably in like the mid two thousands and just kind of would catch it here and there. But I mean, for those first few years, I mean, at least the first ten years, but definitely those first few years. I was all about The Simpsons. I mean, it was a merchandising bonanza. I was trying to get my hands on everything that I could, watching it all the time. I mean, to this day, some of those early episodes, my friends and I will still quote as like inside references or jokes that go back to the junior high years. So, yeah, I was all about The Simpsons. I actually remember going to get The Simpsons Sing the Blues cassette tape. Oh, my gosh. At a department store, and they were sold out. So this is when I found out what a rain check was. Because back in the day, <laughs> kids, if you went to the store and they didn't have what you wanted, it wasn't that you were crap out of luck or had to go online. No, the store would actually give you a little slip of paper that guaranteed the next time they got it in, you were guaranteed a copy. And that is how I got my copy of Simpson Sing the Blues. Man, I haven't thought about rain checks in forever. That's why. Neither have I. That just spurred that memory. <laughs> Uh, what about you, Beth? Were you were you there waiting for The Simpsons to come on when it premiered? Uh, <clears throat> well, one might even be forgiven for thinking that I talked about The Simpsons last year <clears throat> on this very podcast. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> but I Look, I can't remember stuff from year to year. That's, I can't remember stuff from week to week. I can barely remember we had this podcast today, so I'm, that's, <laughs> I'm doing good there. Who are you guys again? What am <laughs> I doing right now? Where are we? I, I was only talking about the Tracy Ullman show, Simpsons, last year, so Sean can be forgiven for The Simpsons debuting on its own. Well, and they're very, very different things because the you know the the shorts on the Tracy Ullman show were significant, but the the Simpsons television show changed everything because all of a sudden most of the networks were looking for some kind of primetime animated show. And there were a lot of misfires uh, that, that followed in the wake of The Simpsons' success. Well, and there there were some not great parts of the first few seasons. Once they got the animation together and down, uh, once they got the voices down, I honestly ended up liking Homer so much better than Bart. Well, and that's the, I mean, they really probably didn't hit their stride until the third season. Like, that that was when the show became flawless, I think, uh, where every episode was just knocking it out of the park. And like Chris said, I, I kind of fell off probably in the mid-2000s, but the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s were just, to, to me, the the golden age of The Simpsons. But I also feel that to a certain extent the simpsons is probably a lot like saturday night live where depending on what generation you're part of that defines which era of the simpsons you prefer because you know now they're not writing for us they're writing for people 10 years younger than us mm-hmm. it's it's a completely different thing now so i i and because anytime a show lasts that long the only way it survives is to evolve and to recognize that it needs to start shooting for different demographics as it sticks around for longer and longer. And I think even whatever when you... It's not... Oh, go ahead. Uh, even even when it's not great, even if I just flip on an episode now and just happen to catch one, it's even a bad Simpsons episode is still better than 90% of what you're going to see on network television. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Because every once in a while, because well, we, we love Bob's Burgers, so we'll catch, you know, Simpsons leading into that sometimes. And it's still a very good show. It's not destination TV for us, but it's not like I want to change the channel like I do with, like you said, 90% of the stuff on television. All right, excellent. Simpsons was a great one. Uh, any, any final thoughts on that, Sean? Uh, no, but I am leaving for Orlando this week, so I think uh, in celebration of the 30th anniversary, I will have to make sure that I get a, a flaming bow and a probably a lard lad donut. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. You need one of those big-ass pink donuts. They make them, and they're as big as your head. Yeah, it's, they're ridiculous. We so insane. We, when we were down there a couple of years ago, our plan had been, well, we're each going to get a donut. And then we saw them and we were like, we're going to share a donut. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to split a donut. Uh, for, and that'll be breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, for the hey, listeners, Sean. for the... Uh, Sean, sorry. Damn it, Beth. I'm sorry. If, if we were here, I would be strangling you Homer style. Not really. <laughs> Not really. Um but if you uh, the listeners want to follow the Red Ranger on Instagram, I'm sure he will be posting pictures of himself with that glorious pink donut. Oh, absolutely. Boy, that sounded dirtier than I meant it to. <laughs> <laughs> or did you? Uh, all right. Time out. And let's kick it over to Chris again. Did I do that right? What does that even mean? I don't well, know. Technically, that means we're all supposed to be frozen, and it's just you. So I mean, okay. So Chris, <laughs> tag in. I don't know. Time in, tag in. It's all right. all right. I will. I will take it from here because in 1989, on a wonderful summer Saturday morning, they decided to forego the usual uh, full block of animation for a live action sitcom featuring a group of high school kids that would become a pop culture phenomenon and uh, the show and uh, marketing bonanza of which I based my entire existence on and (laughs) named a human being after the main character. Uh, That would be Saved by the Bell, my favorite television show of all time, featuring my favorite TV character of all time, uh, the namesake of my nickname and the namesake of my son, Zach Morris. Uh, It is a show that I will watch to this day. Uh, even the worst episodes are still some of the best TV to me. My four-year-old understands where his name came from and uh, calls Saved by the Bell uh, the Zachary Morris show and <laughs> will ask to watch episodes. Uh, it forged several spinoffs, uh, the college years in the new class. Uh, the Saved by the Bell, the new class, actually ran three seasons longer than the original. Um, and it was not as good, but yes, I watched every episode and owned them all on DVD. And uh, it basically started the whole transition of Saturday morning animation, at least on NBC to TNBC, which was the block of teenage-based sitcoms and high school shows, of which myself and our good friend Sean here became obsessed with and often chat about uh, here in these conversations and online. So I can't feign total ignorance of saved by the bell because when it i i I have seen episodes i was not anywhere near as regular a viewer as you guys were uh but it was part of the saturday morning lineup my biggest memory of feelings though were being angry that the cartoons were ending 
Like, I didn't want live-action people creeping into my cartoon time. And, and as you said, uh, what, Saved by the Bell was, was it 11 a.m. or was it noon? When did it come on? I, I think it was that, 11. It, I don't it think actually, it was a noon, yeah. It would actually show two episodes quite often, too. You'd get, you'd get like, that double dose of Saved by the Bell. Oh, boy, that's twice as much as I need. Uh, <laughs> but but if... Whatever do you mean? I think if... I don't know. I just loved cartoons so much, and Saturday morning cartoons were such a sacred tradition to me that I think that's more than anything what affected whether or not I liked Saved by the Bell. Because in all honesty, I should have been watching it. I should have been enjoying it. It was targeted 100% at right around my age group. Uh, but Because, you know, at 13 years old it's time to be sort of getting out of cartoons a little bit and starting to, to be more interested in things like that. But also I think something that might have been working against it is I was already watching adult sitcoms at that time. So I, I wasn't... The tone that it had didn't work for me because I was already a huge fan of all the adult sitcoms of the era. But uh, I recognize the show. It's a massive pop culture phenomenon, and I certainly will never begrudge it that. And, of course, Sean, you you have uh, based no small part of your personality on your experiences with Saved by the Bell. Oh, yeah. Before I had uh, Mike Patton hair, I had Zach Morris hair. (laughs) There's photographic evidence of this, too, isn't there? Oh, there is on Facebook. Yeah, it was Zach Morris, Luke Perry. It was that. I mean, oh, my God. It, it was the high was piled high, filled with Aquanet. It was bleached. It was it was bad. Um, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Chris has that. Chris, I, now, well, I keep wanting to call you Zach on the show, um, but I remember that that's your son's name. Uh, yeah, that I missed the cartoons, but again, I was in the middle of an identity crisis, and I was always the same age as the characters on the show, even through the college years. And so I would always I, I watched the show and I wanted the cartoons back, but then I was like, well, you know what? I'm starting a new school this year. I'm gonna take notes from Saved by the Bell, and this will help me fit in. Uh, spoiler alert: It did not help. Me <laughs> that fit sounded in. like a solid plan to me. I, I mean, like on the surface, it, it made sense. <laughs> but um, Beth was in school with me, so she can attest that it was a miserable failure. Um, I had much more success with the Mike Patton hair than I did with the Zach Morris hair. Um, but I just, it, Saved by the Bell became this escapist fantasy, um, where it was just, I thought that's how the world should be. And so when I would get home from school and it sucked, I could watch Saved by the Bell and go, I'm just going to escape and lose myself. And, you know, because after it aired on Saturday mornings, it went into syndication. It was airing on the afternoons as well. And I think uh, that's and- more of when I saw it. Yeah, yeah, and then when that became unavoidable, and then even as an adult, um, because I am just constantly wrapped up in escapist fantasies, uh, TBS would show sometimes four episodes in the morning. morning. Yeah, and so I would get up and I would sit down and watch all four episodes while eating cereal as, like, a grown man in his 30s getting ready (laughs) to go to work. And it would just put me in a good mood. So I've literally, I probably have seen every episode no less than five times. 
um, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, and then I watch all the spinoffs, and and Chris and I have talked about all of those. The 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 Saved by the Bell. The, Saved by the Bell was much like Scooby Doo in that once they had a winning formula, they just kept recycling that formula with different faces for as long as they could milk that particular cow. I think one of the things that bugged me the most about it is I found Screech intolerable. Well, you're not wrong. <laughs> It's a good thing that you never got into the new class then, because once they brought him in into the new class, he basically became a parody of the caricature that he was. Oh, jeez, I can't even imagine. Yeah, they, and he was uh, a vice principal with no real, like, did they ever even explain, like, did he go to college? I mean, well, he was he in went, the college years. He went to college in the college years, so season one of the new class was a, like, much how Sean said, they found a winning formula, and it worked with shows like California Dreams and, and Hang Time and City Guys, where there was a little bit of variance, but the same basic gist. With Saved by the Bell, they literally were like, hey, the other kids get old, they went to college, we're doing the college years thing, we're going to take six kids and do the same exact storylines with the same exact gimmicks and the same exact formula. So you had your preppy kid, your nerdy kid with a nickname, your hotshot jock mechanic guy, the fashionable girl, the neurotic girl, and the pretty girl next door, and we're going to stick them in Bayside High with Mr. Belding and some of the supporting cast, and you're going to like it. And this is coming from the biggest Save by the Bell fan on Earth. It sucked. I mean, <laughs> so bad. I, I taped it, I watched it, I like I said, I have it on DVD, but it wasn't until they started shaking it up a little bit. So in season two, they brought Screech back saying that he was basically on like a work study from college. So he was like the administrative assistant to Mr. Belding. So there was at least some carryover for like the original fans that might have been lapsing due to the flop of the first season. And they did do a brief reunion episode in that season. And at least they were kind of making up reasons as to why all these kids were coming to Bayside High every season. But there was just so much cast turnover. I mean, you had four years of a cast that became established pop culture icons. And then every season, it was going to be like the luck of the draw. Like, all right, well, what new class cast member is going to stick around this time? Because they would completely overhaul it every season. And Screech and maybe like Screech, Mr. Belding and like two characters were like the only ones to even make it from the halfway point to the end. The first three seasons were just, they, they couldn't get their footing. They, they couldn't do it. And the other shows were kind of starting to take over popularity-wise. And it's funny how we wound up coming full circle because Saved by the Bell caused NBC to be like, hey, we're going to do all these live-action shows and take over the Saturday morning block. And by the time TNBC, by the time they felt it had run its course, City Guys was the last show to air on TNBC. That was like the last big spinoff. And the reason TNBC ended is because NBC wound up buying a block of educational kids programming from Discovery Kids. So we went from fun cartoons to awesome sitcoms to cartoons that even the best kids wouldn't want to watch. So going back to that very first season of Saved by the Bell, and actually before we do that, Beth, what are your Saved by the Bell feelings? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you were too busy listening to The Cure at the time. I, well, hang on, that's later. I want to preface <laughs> this by saying, as the wife of a man who has seen every single episode of 90210, I want you, Chris and Sean, to know that I am not joking. 
because I've already done that enough with my husband. <laughs> um, but I, I felt that Saved by the Bell was targeted much younger than me. And I was 15 at the time because I was in high school. I did not know those people. I did not school <laughs> in my school. Those, to me, were characters that somebody was writing wanting to get the preteen audience interested. It was like a show targeted towards preteens who, this is what your cool high school is going to be like. You're going to have all these awesome experiences. Oh, don't do drugs, kids. So what you're saying is that Chris was the target audience and that Sean has no excuse. Sean has lots of excuses. Look, look, we've already clarified that I am well beyond the target audience for most things. How arrangers is all I have to say about that. Now, what to go back to that first season of Saved by the Bell, though, what was it that, that really drew you guys in? Do you remember kind of the moment where you were like, whoa, this is, this is my jam, this is speaking to me? I mean, like you know, like like you said, like you were already watching like older sitcoms. I mean, you know, not only was I watching older sitcoms, I was way ahead of my age level with all my entertainment. You know, we've talked before how I was watching R-rated ninja movies, and you know, my family sat around watching Dallas and Dynasty. So I was watching, you know, much more um, adult-oriented programming versus Saved by the Bell. But it was just like it was a funny show. It was a goofy show. I mean. You know, a lot of the stuff is still laugh out loud funny just because of, you know, the people's mannerisms or the actions, but it really was just kind of like that mellow show. Like, they were the cool kids. The appeal was that, and I was that age, and I made damn sure that my high school experience was like that, Um, you know, right down to, you know, trying to recreate uh, episodes of the show as much as I could. Um, And that is not a lie. That is not hyperbole in any way. Uh, It was... Uh, it was just like, you know, the appeal of the characters. Uh, you know, I always thought Tiffany Amber Thiessen was pretty. And, you know, she, while she's not my main celebrity crush, you know, she certainly was doing the job for a 10-year-old who was starting to hit his stride as far as, you know, celebrity girls and celebrity crushes. And, you know, Zach Morris reminded me of, you know, the like my older cousins and the people that my cousins hung out with. You know, like he had the cool clothes and the high-top sneakers. And it was like all stuff that I had been exposed to already, but he was closer to my age. So I think that's what really drew that inspiration. He was kind of the midpoint between where I was at and the effects that my older cousins were having on me. So it was like, whoa, like this, this is attainable now. Like, you know, grandma can get me those sneakers and I have a shirt that looks like that. And my hair is blonde. All I have to do is kind of comb it this way. And within Two years, by the time I hit seventh grade, I was in full-on, like, if there was a Zach Morris cosplay at the time, it was me. (laughs) (laughs) And I carried that all through high school and, you know, still through life. Uh, I, you know, people, you know, you guys see my handle as Zach Malibu. It's because my best friend, as a joke, in seventh grade, we we were at our lockers, and he was like, hey, what's up, Zach Morris? And uh, one of my girlfriends that had the locker next to me, she's like, Oh my God, I never thought of that. You do have hair like him. Uh, and she would say it, and it just become this big thing. And we actually had our high school reunion last year, and as people walked in, it was, I'd say, 75%, hey, what's up, Zach? And 25%, hey, what's up, Chris? 
So it still sticks to this day. It's something that I'll never shake. And like I said, that's where my son got his name from. So you've got Phantom Junior. I've got Zach Junior. That's awesome, Sean. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say I still contend that the best high tops ever released of all time were the Converse Cons, and mm-hmm. I full on got some of those just because of Say by the Bell. Were those Zach the Morris foldover had... ones? No, no, no. These were these were the actual full, like basketball style high tops with like padded tops, and they uh, yep. they doubled as a great BMX shoe because they were so padded around my ankles. It saved me from uh, my ankles taking a beating from the pedals and doing tricks and stuff. Are those still made to today? The, uh, if you try to get a vintage pair, you're going to spend a couple hundred bucks for someone's tattered shoes. Um, there's a similar pair that Converse made called the uh, Converse Weapon, of which I have the all-white high-top pair and the white with uh, black and red trim. So I have some uh, quote-unquote Zach Moore sneakers to further uh, live the gimmick. Nice. I'm going to uh, search for Converse Weapons right now. Yeah, old... <laughs> Uh, old school Converse cost a fortune, I know, because I have been looking for a pair from 1989. I cannot mention what they are because we're not going to talk about on the, that on this episode. <laughs> but if I could even find them in my size, they'd be like 300 bucks. So I'm just going to figure out an alternative solution for that. Yeah, yeah. That. Uh, so um, Osiris is a skate shoe that actually makes a high top that is very similar to the Converse Con um, uh, that I highly recommend. Um, And they're affordable. They're not ridiculously priced. All right. It is time for round two. You guys, 1989 was a tough year. There was so much incredible stuff. But in talking to you guys, there were a lot of things that I was like, man, I'm really concerned this is going to get scooped like UHF did. Uh and I'm glad I've made it to my second pick without it getting scooped up because I feel like it could have very easily been on one of your lists, Uh, and that is Tales from the Crypt on HBO. Holy shit. Uh, This was an absolute uh, revelation for me. Up to that point, to see horror, I had always gone to a friend's house uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sean, you know him, my friend Wayne. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, his parents were very permissive, weren't <laughs> all that worried about what we were doing. So we would rent all the horror movies and we'd go have sleepovers at his house and watch like three, four movies in a night that we knew we wouldn't be able to watch in our own homes or if our parents were supervising us with any kind of closeness whatsoever. But Tales from the Crypt, uh, we had one premium cable channel when I was a kid, and it was HBO. Uh, Originally, it was only on the downstairs television, but at some point uh, between when I was 11 and 13, uh, they got me my own cable box for up in my room. So I was able to watch HBO with the understanding that if I was ever caught watching anything that I should not be watching, the cable box would come out of my room. Then Tales from the Crypt happened, and seeing the promos for this with the Crypt Keeper, with all of the big names that were involved in it, there was no way you were going to keep me from watching this show. And it, it just changed everything, because the idea of a television show that was telling a different, terrifying, funny, gross, 
horror-flavored story every week was just mind-blowing to me. I, I, as a fan, already at that point, a fan of Stephen King, already having seen as many horror movies as I could possibly take in over at Wayne's house, uh, I loved horror, and this was giving me brand new stuff that was exactly my sensibilities. Like I said, it was humor and gore, clever storytelling, over-the-top acting, it was it was just it blew my mind and i tuned in terrified that my parents were going to walk in because if they walked in while somebody's cutting a titty off with a chainsaw or while some kind of fish monster's devouring somebody's face or uh, like that's not going to go over well like these are people who didn't want me watching professional wrestling at the time so you can imagine what an episode of tales from the crypt it would have gone over like a chainsaw murder in church uh, so, loved the show, totally had to sneak to watch it, but it, it informed and influenced so much of my taste in horror and of everything else. And of course, like I said, all of the names involved with it who, who have gone on to do so many other things, Richard Donner, Walter Hill, Joel Silver, Robert Zemeckis, uh, John Landis, like everybody was involved in this show, and, and it was my education in horror, really. Uh, do you guys, uh, we'll start with Beth actually, cause I feel like Beth, you, you were the one I was most concerned about potentially picking this, uh, as a choice. Do you remember when Tales from the Crypt launched? You are actually off the hook on that because we did not have HBO. Ah, so I had the advantage on this one. Indeed. Not only did we not have HBO, I did not have a table box in my room, so <laughs> I was spoiled, I'm not going to lie. Hey, I, I was one of the kids who had the USS flag. Well, I saw it later, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I liked everything about it. I did not see it when it came out. It was probably, oh, I don't know, six, seven years later by the time I finally saw it. So you have a big head start on me on that one. Well, and that first season was only six episodes. Uh, it it ran from it was just in june uh they showed the first three episodes in one night and then there were three more episodes and at the time again we didn't have the internet um i'm sure fangoria was covering it to a certain extent but i don't have specific memories of that uh but it wasn't one of those things where a season of your favorite like for instance titans on dc universe we watched that whole season, and we're just waiting to hear if they renewed it for a second season. Back then, like as a 13-year-old, you don't really have the resources to even know if you should be waiting to hear about a second season. For all I knew, this was a miniseries. For, like, it was a completely different time as far as information was concerned. So I, I devoured those episodes and then fortunately enough the next year we get a second season but it was just uh, it, it was a remarkable thing uh sean and chris do you guys have, have uh memories of that first year of tales from the crypt i was too chicken shit to watch it <laughs> <laughs> i had uh i had hbo i had several of the premium channels i not necessarily just the first season. I mean, I remember Tales from the Crypt overall. Uh, I would watch it if it was on. Like, I wouldn't go out of my way to watch new episodes, but just because 
we had a cable box upstairs uh, where the bedroom was, or if I was at my aunt's house, my cousins were out, like pretty much anywhere I was at, there was a cable box and a premium channel. So I kind of had uh, free reign if no one was watching the TV. So I remember certain episodes. I remember um, the episode where Don Rickles was a ventriloquist. Yes. I think it was Don Rickles, Bob Goldthwaite were in it. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. I remember that one. I remember one with Morton Downey Jr. where they were, like, going through, like, a haunted house. Well, what's funny is anybody who was a name in pop culture at the time ended up on the show. Like, it was very much because you had had an interstitial with the Crypt Keeper and Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was in one of the episodes. Uh, I remember Whoopi Goldberg, too. Yes, Whoopi Goldberg. It It was a very, for as gruesome as the show could be, it was very lighthearted and did not take itself seriously. And I think that's one of the things I loved so much about it is that it, it knew what it was and it wasn't trying to be, you know, highbrow or, or be any kind of award-winning thing. It knew it was based on a comic book, even if I didn't know that at the time, uh, which, right. which is, which is funny. I had no, even though I was reading comics at the time, I didn't know about Crypt of Terror, Vault of Horror. Like I didn't know about these comics and I didn't realize this show was directly adapting stories from those comics. I wouldn't even discover those EC comics until years later. Uh, but like I said, it was just, it, it was a game changer. It, w- it was a massive thing uh, to to have this so accessible and s- the the greatest minds, not just in horror, but in filmmaking, making these little short stories for television. I mean, it, it really is remarkable. And just think it spawned off a cartoon for kids. Right, Tales from the Crypt Keeper, which I've got the entire series of action figures from that. And they're great. <laughs> they're beautiful. Uh, any any more Tales from the Crypt thoughts, anybody? Then we will move on. Uh, Sean, what is your second red thing from 1989? All right, so since I couldn't go with the real thing... Ha <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there are a bunch of great albums that came out in 1989, and I would love to be like, I was totally listening to that, but I was not. Um, I, I didn't I, real up. quick, let me just say I had the same experience. Like, when I was looking through the music, I was like, wow, that's awesome, that's awesome, but I wasn't actually into that at that point. Right, yep. like, Paul, <laughs> Paul's Boutique came out. I didn't pick up Paul's Boutique for another, it would be another couple of years. Yeah, Paul's, I Paul's Boutique, Operation Ivy, Green Day's first EP, like, a lot of incredible stuff came out, but I was not listening to it then. Yeah, no, I wasn't picking up on it yet. I was, I was behind. Uh, but an album I absolutely had, and to my parents' credit, and if you've ever heard me on this podcast, I don't give them much credit. <laughs> uh, the two live crew as nasty as they want to be came what? out in 1989. Yes. Oh, and, wow. And we, I had heard it was going to be banned. I'm not a huge two live crew fan. I was a big enough two live crew fan, but I was a really big people should be allowed to say whatever they want to say, even if it's stupid and don't label my records. And yeah, so yeah. when it came out that that might be banned, I was like, I have to have this album and I have to have the dirty version. So my parents called my uncle who lived in Pennsylvania and he bought a copy and sent it down to me so that I could have an uncensored, unlabeled, as dirty as they want to be copy of that uh 
the the full on dirty copy of that album, and I listened to it constantly. It was wow. on regular rotation. It was that, the real thing, and Mother's Milk, and uh, Real Life Send Me an Angel. Those four cassettes would get regular rotation um, in my Walkman, and uh, yeah, and that was a that was a huge album, and it was, and again, it was more like a uh, it was a, a minor political statement from a fourteen year old. <laughs> he was just like, "Don't censor my music. I don't like this," and uh, and yeah, so it, it just became like this sort of seminal thing. And then I don't know that I've listened to another Two Live Crew album since. Me- meanwhile, I thought Tone Loke's Wild Thing might be a little much for my parents. <laughs> my my parents were hippies, like they were ex hippies and stoners, and so it makes them both lousy parents and great parents when you listen to music. I remember, and I I have since uh, developed an appreciation for 2 Live Crew, uh, almost an ironic appreciation, I think, especially after uh, there's a a DJ named Jason Nevins who who remixed a number of their songs into a much more palatable form, uh, in my opinion. But I remember Band in the USA... And how big that was now, but that was that eighty nine or ninety. No, that that was the follow up based on the issues they had with as nasty okay, as they wanted. Okay, okay, okay. So that was we'll talk about that one next year. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I do remember on MTV News, Kurt Loder talking about all of the places where Two Live Crew were not allowed to play, all the shows getting shut down, uh, and the. I'm trying to remember when the whole Tipper Gore thing went down. I feel like it was previous to 1989, but the two life crew were were very much uh, victims of the fallout from the parental advisory deal. Yeah, PMRC was 1985. Okay, yeah, I was thinking it was much much earlier than that. Uh, yeah, I, I never they never did much for me, but I was completely aware of the issue thanks to once again our cultural touchstone of MTV. Uh, Chris, you've you've got to have some two live crew thoughts. Uh, I've got plenty of two live crew thoughts. I actually have a two live crew T-shirt. Oh my gosh! <laughs> um, I love two live crew, and it's funny that we talk about our parents because, like I said, you know, a lot of my music taste and influence and, and stuff that I was hearing came from my cousins. So whether it was freestyle, rap, rock, it was all from them. So of course. Me so horny comes out and my cousins get on the car and I don't know what horny means. I'm just like, whoa. (laughs) And then suffice to say when I'm humming it around the house, my mother's like, what the hell? Like, no, 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 you you can't be, can't be singing this. Um, but my cousin did get me the single. So for those who are listening and like, what the hell is a single? There used to be like the main single and then a B side sold separately from the album. Uh, usually for like 50 cents or a buck or something like that. So I actually had the single of me so horny that I would like hide up in my room because my mother did most of the shopping. My dad to this day is a guy who hated the mall and, and hated the store and just was like, he'll go shopping like once a year at Christmas time and, and to the market if you really need to. So my mom would be like, yeah, I'll take you to the record store. We'll go to the mall. And this is a woman who would complain in later years that she bought me Belbiv DeVoe, despite having bought me every new edition release prior because of the song Do Me, and then she bought me K7, who was a member of a freestyle group, again, music that she'd bought me previously, because of the song Come Baby Come in 1993. So she was not <laughs> yes. too happy about So Horny. 
1989. Okay, but, wait. Uh, was Come, I love... Come Baby Come, was that K7? Is that right? Yeah. Come Baby Some was K7, and uh, he was uh, in a freestyle group, TKA, that was big in the uh, mid to late 80s. So uh, okay, actually, okay. when I go to a lot of these uh, freestyle concerts, he actually does both. He comes out with the group and then does like the K7 stuff solo. Oh, um, wow. So I've actually seen him perform that live. I'm but, pretty um, sure you and Dana came out to that one year for the game show. We we used it for something because it was it was from was it on the mask soundtrack, I think? He had, I think so, I think, yeah. I think he had uh he had Heidi Ho in the mask. Yeah. Well I'm trying to think. I I know I know it from a soundtrack, and then they used it in Suicide Squad. Yep. Yes. As well. Uh, which both both instances, of course, delight me because that's that's a ridiculous but awesome song. It is an amazing song. Uh, Beth, what about you? Any any uh, two live Beth? <laughs> uh, if if I had wanted to buy a two live crew album, I don't think it would have been allowed. But I didn't want to buy one, so it really wasn't an issue. Why not? What? So you're telling me that? Uh, that two life crew Morrissey collab never happened. <laughs> I mean, if I knew how to remix stuff, I would go do that right now. But I, <laughs> somebody, that would be like some some listener, right? Some listener, please make that happen. I know you guys have skills that that I do not. Let's let's get the uh, two life crew Morrissey remix out there we need it show me that pussy <laughs> that pussy god how do you think about sex and be depressed about it that was amazing uh all right well let's uh let's carry on uh and and actually it is beth let's let's change the subject shall we oh yeah <laughs> i i am surprised again that this did not get taken out from under me i apologize if this was on somebody's list but i'm choosing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for my second pick. It was on my list, absolutely, but you go right ahead. Um, I think that this is probably one of the most poorly reviewed best movies ever, much like UHF. Terrible, terrible critic reviews. Fantastic movie. Um, The idiots go marauding through time, and there is not one single thing in this movie that isn't funny. There's there's not anything that makes it unwatchable now. It absolutely still holds up to this day, given the fact that we are heading into them making a third movie this year. Clearly, I'm not the only one. Yeah. Yeah, that movie has a legacy. Um, it, it is It defines cult classic uh, because of what you said. It, 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 when it came out, uh, those of us who loved it were not really counted among the demographic that the movie studios were looking for. And it was, it's, it's mind boggling that it got a sequel. Which was still great. And I don't, you know, I don't know the numbers. I can only assume that, that the original, because it was made independently, uh, on a budget, I'm sure the profits, you know, justified bogus journey, but it, it really is a miracle that between that that first movie has spawned a sequel and now we're getting another one as well. Well, I'm, I'm on the IMDb page right now and it had a, a 44 critic score. 
So even if it made a little bit of money, to be so poorly reviewed, it's still surprising that the franchise would still exist today. Although things were different back then as well. Uh, You know, now, when something like that happens with a movie, it's kind of just the end. But back then, little, little projects that had a lot of love put into them did have a chance to survive. I can't remember I don't remember the first time I watched the movie uh, I know I didn't see it in the theater uh, I'm pretty sure it would have been on VHS I know that I did love it from the start it wasn't anything you know a lot of the stuff that I'm a big fan of I didn't care for at first but I think Bill and Ted I, I immediately was on board with I, I dug it right out of the gate uh, Chris do you uh, what are your Bill and Ted feelings? I didn't see it in the theater, but once it hit cable, that's when I saw it. And at the time, it was one of those movies that was just getting replayed and in rotation forever and ever. So it was kind of my preteen years where I really got hooked on it. And I mean, I loved it. I mean, at one point, Marvel Comics was doing a Bill and Ted comic book, and I actually bought it because that's how much I was into the movie at the time. Uh, I want to say the comic book was like around like 91 or 92, so after Bogus Journey. But I was all about it when I was a kid. I thought it was like the greatest movie at the time. Anytime it was on, I was watching it. And I am definitely looking forward to the sequel. It is something that I never thought I'd see, but you best believe that this will be the one that I do go to see in the cinema. And actually, to go back a little bit, uh, Beth, what what is it that's so... Because it it's very lo-fi... Uh, and and aside from George Carlin, it's not like the performances are particularly amazing. Like, you know, Alex Winters and Keanu Reeves play the roles that are there to play, but they're not, like, amazing in those roles. What is it about this movie that makes it so magical? I think it's the plot, for one, which was... You know, I I was already all about anybody tra- time traveling in a phone box. Right, right. So that that hooked me off the bat, but the ridiculousness of the time travel and and the the reason that they were time traveling, it wasn't like a oh, we've got to go save our parents to make sure that they get married and have me. It it wasn't we've got to go save the world. It was well, we got to do a book report, and let's go get Socrates and Beef Oven and Mr. the Kid. And its ridiculousness worked in a way that it should not have. And, yes, the performances were pretty terrible. And who thought that Keanu Reeves would be the big star that he is back then? But somehow it all of the parts came together and, and made that movie something extremely special. Well, and I think there was also an aspect, like Sean and Chris were saying about Saved by the Bell, there was a certain amount for me of, look at these guys, they're cool, they've, they're in high school, like, if, and granted, they're not doing particularly well, but there was a little bit of that sort of, oh, these guys are cool, I'd kind of like to be like them, uh, to, to the movie where they I wouldn't say they're role models, but they're relatable in a way. Everybody can relate to a loser at some point in their teenage lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about you, Sean? What did, uh, have you seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? 
I mean, well, first of all, I can definitely relate to a loser, so there's that. Um, but uh, no, I did see it. I have seen it multiple times. Uh, I, I, when every year the sequel came out, I'll have to bring up Bogus Journey, um, uh, mostly because I had Jim Martin from Faith No More saw that in the theater. Yes. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a thing where the guys were so relatable. It was like I know people like this. I would kind of love to be that carefree. Uh, ever, and um, I still would love to be that carefree, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was great, it, and it was it hit that weird note where like Pauly Shore was really famous for a minute uh, yeah. for being a dumbass, and and it hit that same sort of like particularly living in Atlanta, Georgia, nowhere near a beach, and I'd say By the Bell did the same thing. It had this weird kind of surfer culture that i was like oh i kind of want to be a part of that like, that's a thing um well that was, a, like, that was a thing then though because the the skateboard culture and the surfer culture kind of got intermingled yeah exactly. a lot like if you went even in atlanta if you went to a skate shop they had like life's a beach stuff and sex wax and like it, it, those two cultures were very much blended at that point and were were for people our age were like the height of cool. Yeah, they were they were the defining, you know, it was and particularly, you know, it, if you were a skater or the BMXer like that whole thing, it was like here's how we surf without waves. And uh so yeah, so we were all in on that kind or, of that, or, that kind of stuff. Or even if you were really uncoordinated and just watched your friends do those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it was a total that was that was sort of how we defined um, like that was the grouping, right? Like you had the jocks and then you had the skaters and, and the punks. And, you know, so that, that kind of bled in. So you could kind of be like, yeah, I can see myself jumping in a phone booth and going to talk to Socrates. And, and that'd be a, a thing that I would totally consider normal for some weird reason. <laughs> well, and I think that was the other thing is the, the, uh, all the biographical figures that they pulled out were very palatable. There wasn't. They weren't particularly fantastical, but they also weren't so true to themselves that they were dull. Uh, they they hit a really nice balance of being entertaining, but also being, you know, to our mentality, believable enough that they pulled them out of whatever era they were supposed to come from. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's probably Nap- Napoleon it- probably not acting like that in real yeah. life. That guy's <laughs> probably not nearly as much fun no. as he was in the movie. He's not going to down the Ziggy Pig and hang out with those kids. <laughs> not at all. Um, but yeah, and I think that was the thing. Is like There was just something about it struck that perfect tone. Uh, it, it captured so much of that time period. And it's one of the things that when I watch it, I'm immediately taken back to it. Like I might yeah. as well just be back in 1989 while I'm watching it. Yeah, there is a certain amount of timelessness to it. E- even though it's so representative of the era, it it feels like something that's sort of plucked out of it as opposed to restrained by the the time it's representing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Chris, it's it's down to you to wrap up round 2. What is your second favorite thing from 1989? So, my second favorite thing would have to be not necessarily a particular album or television show or movie, uh, but it's more or less the culmination uh, or the uh, emergence of Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, wow. To the comedic pop culture phenomenon, uh, the album Dice was released in 1989, 
but you had everyone kind of, you know, parents and adults looking at him sideways because of his content. You had the MTV mishap that got him banned, and, you know, he was just, uh, he was comedy's bad boy. And, you know, as a kid, obviously, not getting all the references, but I had seen enough comedy and enough, uh, you know, R-rated comedy movies to understand the basis of some things. Um, obviously, I thought the nursery rhymes were the funniest thing imaginable at the time. Uh, and I guess on, in an adult sense, they were somewhat original. But he was, uh, at the time, someone that I just found really funny. I was really entertained by him. As I got older, I was so entertained by him. And I, you know, I think that he gets a bad rap from some people who think that he was only all about the nursery rhymes. But to this day, he remains one of my favorite comedians. Uh, he actually just did a two-season run on Showtime. He did like a Curb Your Enthusiasm yes. style show. Yes. And it was hysterical. He well, was, th- there he- are people who don't understand that it's a character. Yeah. That, yeah, that, the, yeah, the whole dice thing stemmed from his appearance in a movie. Which, by the way, I will defend the adventures of Fairlane to my grave. Oh, and it's not even that movie. No, he, no, um, but I but I love that movie. But yeah, oh yeah, that, I mean, that, that was just a, a... So, you know, I mean, that that is peak Hollywood right there, just trying to cash in as quickly as they can on a fad. But I love um, it I, because he's he's under... Well, well, we'll talk about that on a future episode. Sure. But he made a... Uh, he had a cameo in what was it? So he was in a, you know, several, movies, but he was in a movie called Making the Grade with Judd Nelson in 1984, and he played like a street tough, and he was the dice man, and he had kind of developed like that like Suedo Travolta personality for his comedy stuff, but he didn't really fully become dice until after he appeared in that movie as basically that character. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that, and that's not what I was thinking of. Because there's, he appeared in some other like teen comedy type movie as like a bouncer or something. I don't. Yeah, think... that, that was Pretty in Pink. That's the one I was. Thinking. Okay, yeah. that's that's what I'm yeah. thinking of. Yeah, he was in Pretty in Pink. Uh, he also played a bouncer years later in Brain Smasher, a love story well, with Terry Hatcher, where it was him and Terry Hatcher being chased by ninjas. <laughs> okay. Well, that just sounds amazing. I'm adding that to the list right now. From... 93, Brain Smasher, A Love Story. I uh, obviously remember Andrew Dice Clay because, again, MTV being the cultural touchstone that it was, uh, the 1989 MTV Video Music Awards are where he delivered his famous Mother Goose nursery rhymes to the horror of MTV executives Mm -hmm. uh, and was banned from ever appearing on MTV again. Yep. And that, so, I mean, think about it. This was kind of his breakthrough year. For sure. And and, and the year that he kind of uh, lost some sense of exposure because MTV, being the phenomenon that it was, wanted nothing to do with him after that. Yeah, they, I mean, they, he pretty much got buried for a while mm-hmm. b- because of the fallout from that, which just goes to show, even though MTV was not. Uh, you know, they did comedy, but MTV was... It's not like they were Comedy Central or, or the Comedy Channel, which could have also been a topic for this episode, but just didn't quite make it in. Uh, you know, they were a powerful force in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to figure out when the heck Ford Fairlane came out. Was it... It wasn't 90. Was, 91. 
it was either it was either late ninety or ninety one. Yeah, you're right. It's ninety nineteen ninety. 1990. That was later than I thought it was. Okay, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I I was always thoroughly amused by Andrew Dice Clay. Um, I never really got to that point where I, I was like, I'm sick of this guy, and I think it was partially because he, he kind of faded away for a while, but over the last decade or so, he's, he's definitely, I wouldn't say made a comeback, because we, we couldn't fairly say he's as pop-culturally relevant as he was in the late 80s. But he certainly found a, a career for himself and I think gotten a lot of his, his respect back from the entertainment industry at the very least. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, responsible. You know, One of my favorite comedians uh, of the modern age is Jim Norton, who I discovered uh, off Opie and Anthony. Opie and Anthony had been uh, on a Boston station that we would get here in Rhode Island, and I discovered them in the mid-90s. So when they made the move to New York and to Satellite, uh, my buddy got uh, one of the first uh, XM converters or whatever you want to call them for his car. He's like, oh, these dudes are hysterical. I'm like, I know exactly who they are. They used to be on the, the local rock station. And Jim Norton was like their third chair. And then, you know, he got to be so big based off that show to the point where neither Opie nor Anthony are even on XM anymore. But Jim Norton is still there with his own show. And it was Dice Clay who gave him his first real big career break because... Andrew took him on tour and I'm open for him. So there's like a whole core of comedians that Norton introduced me to. And I can kind of thank Dice for that because it was Dice that got Norton to be where he is. Oh, that's fantastic. And see, that's the, that's what's so fun about all this kind of pop culture stuff is you never know who's had an influence on what, where certain things have come from. And, uh, and again, there's a certain aspect of that movie we're not discussing that had a massive impact on the toy industry, but you listeners are just going to have to stay tuned to Needless Things to find out just what the heck I'm talking about there. Uh, All right, round two is done. It is time, unfortunately, for us to talk about the things that made us sad in 1989, things that we hated, uh, disappointed us, or gave us any kind of negative feelings. Uh, It's hard to look back at those years and think about the things that affected us in a negative way, but we're going to do it right now for the benefit of the listeners and because that's what we do on the Needless Things podcast. Uh, Sean, will you start us off with the thing that made you sad in 1989? <laughs> uh, this is more a sad in hindsight um, because there was a brief moment where I gave in to the fact that the new kids on the block were the biggest thing in the world in 1989. And I thought that, you know what? If I listen to that album, I might have friends in the popular kids club because they seem to be listening to that album. And uh, that was a miserable failure, and that album was garbage. And everything, New Kids on the Block, in spite of the fact that 14-year-old Sean could do every dance move in the video, Woo! Uh, which should surprise nobody that knows me. Should, um, should that have been a selling point for you? <laughs> you would think. Um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, in hindsight, there's, if, if, if I could wave a magic wand and take out, um, a part of my brain, uh, and a part of my history, it would be that part that had the pirated cassette copy of Hanging Tough by New Kids on the Block. You better hope Jessica and Carly don't listen to this episode, or you're going to be getting some angry DMs. Oh, God. Uh, no, yeah, it won't even be DMs. My cell phone will be blowing up. <laughs> I mean... Uh, Jessica just sent me the uh, p- 
picture of her with her new kids on the block earrings that she was upset that nobody noticed and i was like well you know they're new kids on the block earrings (laughs) 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 and despite our many many years of friendship this is where we differ I will have to say that this is where that we differ because uh, New Kids on the Block was actually the first concert I ever went to. <laughs> uh, I got nothing for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew the dance moves, and I was rocking that cassette, and uh, Jordan Knight actually lives locally because he pops in the bank that's like five minutes from my house that my friend works at. And she's like, oh, Jordan Knight came to drop off like a check from his gym for like, you know, half a million dollars in the landlord or whatever. Um, Don't yeah, tell I, it, our friends Jessica and Carly because they'll be in your backyard at the post office. <laughs> <laughs> they were uh, well, they were, you know they were based out of Boston, so they got a lot of extra play around here because you know New England being New England, it's like you know, we're all as one, just like with the Patriots and all that stuff. Uh, even though I hate the Patriots, but um, yeah, I, I was all about the New Kids, and uh, my sister still is, and the fact that they have linked up with the Backstreet Boys, which is like her other favorite <laughs> band of all time, um, she could not be happier. Uh, and the fact that she does uh, financial financial analyzing for a venue that often has big concerts like that, yeah, she's gotten to see them like pretty much any time they come around. So they, uh, the new kids' love is strong in the Deep Petrillo family. Well, Chris, you're going to carry on right now with something that you do not have strong love for. <laughs> All right, so this was mentioned during the Save by the Bell talk about how, uh, you know, there were certain shows that my family had become uh, obsessed with, and they were weekly viewing, and, you know, the phone would go off the hook, and everyone would sit around, and you couldn't get up or make a noise or make a peep until that show was over, and those two shows, mainly with my family, were Dallas and Dynasty, and in May of 1989, Dynasty came to an end on a cliffhanger that left us basically pulling our hair out wondering what was going to happen to our favorite characters because it did not come back this was the pre-dawn of the internet age we didn't have any fan fiction we didn't have any hints we didn't have any type of uh, petition to sign to get our show back on the air we had to wait a whole two years until they did a reunion movie which kind of bastardized the cliffhanger in the first place to find out what happened to the Carrington clan and uh, it was heartbreaking to a young Zach Malibu not knowing what was going to happen to all his favorite characters that he had become obsessed with over the years with his cousins and aunts and parents well what what exactly was like what went down uh, you didn't know if Blake Carrington was alive or dead. He was kind of left for dead. And Joan Collins and her husband Dex on the show, they went over a balcony. Uh, basically, oh all gosh. the characters were kind of, yeah, all the characters were kind of placed in some sort of peril. And, you know, you were basically like, you know, instead of tune in next week or we'll see you next season, they made the decision that this was it. And it didn't end with any sort of closure. It was the most open-ended of open-ended season finales that there ever was. And when they finally came back around for uh, Dynasty the Reunion in 1991, it was... um, They had to kind of uh, recast a couple of characters. Um, The the son, Steven, had been cast by one person uh, in the early days, in the original run, and then they did a thing where the actor left, so they did the old soap opera. I got into an accident, and my face changed. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, 
At this point, he was played by Jack Coleman, who you would remember from Heroes. Uh, he was the character of uh, you know with the uh, the glasses. Oh, the horn rim glasses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so he he was not available for the reunion, so they actually brought back the original actor. And then one of the other sons was committed to another soap opera, so they cast some other random actor. And then, like, in the case of Joan Collins and her husband in the show, she was alive, but he was not there, and they were basically like, oh, it's terrible what happened to her husband. But that was, like, the only comment made about him. So it's like, well, what? Did he break his leg? Did he break his neck? Did he get a paper cut? Like, what was so terrible about it? Um, So, yeah, it was just kind of... uh, a cheap way of ending the show, which was kind of par for the course back then. I felt like a lot of shows would tend to end that way. Um, I think now a lot of people kind of give closure wherever they can. You know, there have been shows that make like a quick YouTube movie or something for the DVD release. Yeah, yeah. You got none of that back then with Dynasty. And, you know, that was a family tradition. I mean, my cousin owned a limousine service that he named Dynasty Limousine Service based on the family obsession of this show so you know not only did we lose our show but we you know had you know we we couldn't stay attached to something that we had no idea what was going on with it was just kind of kind of sad for the right clan years of investment in these characters and in these storylines just went yep oh that's rough oh uh i I have no dynasty memories whatsoever anybody I have no dynasty memories at all, but uh, when we covered 1992, uh, Chris, help me remember Swan's Crossing. Cause oh, I... we were talking about Swan's Crossing. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I yeah. have every episode on a VHS, well, not a VHS tape, but I have a VHS tape collection of Swan's Crossing. Uh, mostly because your experience with Dynasty matches my experience with Swan's Crossing. Yeah, oh, but we, we, we'll, we'll talk. We'll go further into it. That is where my love for Sarah wow. Michelle Geller. Beth. Please pull us <laughs> out of this vortex. Um, well, I, I also have a, a serial that I was heavily invested in that was canceled in 1989, but it was Doctor Who and not a soap opera. See, but so the orig- were we? Hmm? Was it on here though? Because I don't. Were we? Did we get the cancellation like in real time? Because I was trying to figure that out for my disappointment, and I couldn't, I would, I couldn't remember when it was being broadcast here because we didn't, like, we didn't know when Tom Baker was getting replaced. We didn't know, like, because we were watching it years later, and I, I couldn't quite figure out when Sylvester McCoy's last episode aired here. I don't know exactly when it aired here, but I know that it had to have been in 1989 because or at least i saw it in 1989 because my parents were somehow through some sort of hippie wizardry <laughs> able to get able to get episodes very shortly after they aired oh okay okay so i wasn't watching years later i was watching from the time i was a small child and these things were happening at the time i i don't know if they paid some kind of magical wizard to bring them episodes fresh but we we were not that far behind we did not have the two to three year lag that i know network television had here well it wasn't even network it was pbs and they were like years behind but see i think at one point i feel like maybe colin baker and sylvester mccoy started being broadcast with a little more proximity to to how they were being broadcast in england 
but I, I, it's it's hard. Like nobody has records of that stuff, so I don't know. So anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, anyway, after the disappointment of Colin Baker and not particularly liking a whole lot of his storylines, and definitely not liking his companion Mel, um, Sylvester McCoy was much better. He's not my favorite doctor ever, but after coming off Colin Baker. I enjoyed him much more, and there were some really good episodes in those seasons. Uh, Time in the Ronnie, Remembrance of the Dialects, The Ghost Curse Light. of Fenric. Yes, Ghostlight. Fantastic. Those are all great episodes. And then for it to, it, it to be getting better and then to go away was very, very upsetting to me. Because I was heavily invested in that show. Now, when you watched was Survival, that's the last one, right? Yes. Which uh, there is a review of Survival on oldneedlessthings.com. Uh, when you were watching Survival, did you know that was it? I don't think I did at the time that I watched it. Uh, it's, you know, obviously a very, very long time ago. But I, I don't remember going, oh, well, that sucks. That's the end. Because, again, there wasn't the internet back then for you to know, oh, this show's canceled, it's never coming back. Right, it right. Was, and especially with Doctor Who, because, you know, the end is often the end of this Doctor and there's going to be another Doctor. So for me back then, it was just, oh, okay, well, this Doctor's over. There's going to be another Doctor next year. See, and, I I very specifically remember watching Survival, um and he and Ace, like, don't even really get back in the TARDIS. Like, they kind of walk off into the sunset, and there's this weird voiceover about there will be other times, another whatever. I remember thinking it was weird. And then the next week, because I, I would watch it on PBS at, you know, 11 o'clock Saturday night or whatever it was, and they would broadcast all of the serials together as, like, an hour-and-a-half feature. And the next week they showed a John Pertwee episode and I was like, what the heck just happened? What is this? Cause I had seen John Pertwee before when they had done marathon or excuse me, telethons where you could get a free <laughs> PBS tote bag. Um, and so I knew that they had gone back and that was when I realized that I guessed it was the end of new doctor who's. And and it broke my heart. It it was even worse than when uh, Davison replaced uh, replaced Baker. I, I was just devastated. Good pick. I I don't remember the at, at what point I realized. Wait, this is the end because it, it didn't take me till the next week to realize. It took me longer than that. And after a while, I was like, so no, no, no more Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Ugh. Yeah, and that was like PBS kept playing it, but I didn't at the time. I was young and stupid and didn't care for John Pertwee's episodes, although I love them now. Uh, so that was kind of the end of me watching Doctor Who for a very long time. Um, Until you got to be sad again in 1996. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're not kidding. That's a whole other episode, though. Uh, Sean and Chris, do you guys have any uh, awareness of Doctor Who whatsoever? I have no horse in the Doctor Who race. <laughs> uh, I didn't get into Doctor Who until the Eccleston era, so. Yeah, it was it was tough being a kid and being a Doctor Who fan in, in, with no internet. 
Those were hard. Those were hard times, baby. Uh, all right. So I will close out our sad memories. I'll, I'll put a, I'll put a nail in this horrible 1989 coffin, uh, with something that's not really sad, but, but horrifying. Uh, and that is the movie communion. Now, if you know me, you know, I'm no fan of little gray aliens and the adaptation of the Whitley Strieber novel communion starring Christopher Walken is one of the most horrifying, scary, upsetting, mind wrenching, uh, I'm running out of words, movies of all time. It's, it's, I can't watch it to this day, but unfortunately I did watch it. Uh, now I didn't see it in 1989, so I'm kind of cheating a little bit here, but it came out in November of 1989. Uh, I caught it on cable because even with my deep-seated horror relating to Grey Aliens over the years, I, I have sought out movies about them because I don't know why I have issues. Uh, and I, I watched this movie probably 1 o'clock in the morning one night on, on HBO, or I think by, maybe by the time it came out we had a couple other premium channels because I think around 1990 is when they started bundling them like they do now. Uh, so I saw Communion. And I, I, you know, people watch something like that and they say, I had nightmares for weeks. I have nightmares to this day, uh, <laughs> specifically about scenes from that movie when these hooded creatures are surrounding Christopher Walken in bed, uh, his sleep paralysis, when they're in the cabin. I don't ever want to go to a house out in the woods. I don't care how nice it is. I don't care how many lights there are. Uh, it's just full of horrific, nightmarish imagery. I would rather watch Pinhead rip somebody's genitals off with a saw than watch Communion ever. This the the loss of agency with all of the like gray alien stories is so much more horrifying to me than anything that's ever been put on the screen as far as like gore or anything like that. I, I uh, this this movie is truly disturbing and and horrible, and I never need to see it again. And that's how I feel about that. <laughs> have you guys seen it? Do you share my horror at all? I have no idea what you're talking about. Shocking! <laughs> <laughs> Who I, I, have, I have actually never seen it, uh, but I don't share your fear of tiny gray aliens. I just, for some reason, have never seen it. And I will say this, it's probably a very good movie, but I cannot get through my sheer terror enough uh, to, to give it any kind of reasonable critical evaluation. Uh, Chris, what about you? You're, you're in Whitley Strieber's neck of the woods. I have never seen the movie, but I did the cover of the VHS have like an alien on yes, it. Yes. Yes. It's horrible. I remember <laughs> it from like, you know, like video stores, like going to rent movies and stuff like that. And it wasn't anything that like popped out to me it's it's an alien head over like the new york skyline which was another horrifying aspect of this is is uh the character christopher walken's character is in the middle of new york city he's in like manhattan and still being assaulted by these aliens so nowhere is safe you guys <laughs> well, i mean new york's full of aliens anyway so <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that's my horrific uh memory from 1989 it's time to bring things back, to get a little lighter, and to close this episode out. So what we want to do is have a speed round 
of our final uh, favorite things from 1989. We're not going to have a whole lot of discussion about them. We're just going to throw things out there uh, just to bring things back up, to get the the mood in the room back to a pleasant level. And we're going to start with you, Chris. What is your final favorite thing from 1989? Karate Kid Part 3 with Karate's bad boy Mike Barnes and the awesome founder of Cobra Kai, Terry Silver, seeking revenge on behalf of John Kreese against Danielson and Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. I like When I was younger, all three of the Karate Kid movies, I, I, I dug to different extents. Uh, I, I don't care what anybody says about two or about three. I think they're all like pretty much the same level of awesome. They are all great, and this is a public service announcement for anyone who's listening. If you have not seen Cobra Kai yet on YouTube, do so. It is one of the greatest series I have ever seen. I know you and Rich love it. It is amazing, and the season two finale is, out of any show I've ever seen, one of the most well-done, well-acted, well-put-together finales of any TV show I've ever seen. All right, got to check it out. i got to check it out. Uh, Beth, Beth and Sean, real quick, any Karate Kid 3? Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Beth, what is your final favorite from 1989? Well, I don't know that it's going to up anybody's mood, but oh, no. I... <laughs> just to no one's surprise have picked the cure disintegration album i've been waiting for that <laughs> i know to quote kyle browslowski from south park it is the best album ever <laughs> if you don't if you don't like it in some way or at least one song off it you don't have a soul i'll, Sorry. I'll agree with you on that sean and chris cure memories I remember uh, everybody in Beth's grade was super into The Cure. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, are you a big Cure guy? Uh, this is probably blasphemy to say around these parts, but I um, hate The Cure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But Disintegration... There is only one Cure song that I particularly care for, and that's Lullaby, and I know Lullaby is off that album. And my favorite band covered a Cure song from that album. I'm speaking of Love Song, which is covered by 311. No, come on. You're going to make Beth burst into flames. (laughs) (laughs) But as we like to say around here, we understand not everything is for everybody, and we all appreciate what we all love. That's right. Uh, all right, my uh, last positive thing, and this is a tough one for me, uh, since we're doing just a, a quick and dirty, I'm going to have to go, there are two other things I wanted to talk about so bad, but I'm going to have to save them probably for Dragon Con. I'm going to go with National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. We're going to have a little Christmas in June right now, because that movie just has too much cultural importance to skip over we could do a whole episode about it and maybe someday we will but i've just got to mention uh i i i saw it back then i've watched it every year since then it's to me christmas perfection it is the exact right it treads the line between blasphemy and genuine heartfelt sentiment perfectly uh Again, it's jarring that the children are different in every freaking movie, but uh, I just I, I adore Christmas Vacation. I freaking love it. it. It's one of the it's it's a great movie and it's one of the best Christmas movies. Total agreement. 
Sean, have you seen Christmas Vacation? Oh, yes. Multiple times. It's amazing. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Beth, how do you feel about Christmas Vacation? Is is uh, Is it on your playlist, or is it not so much? I've seen it, but honestly, I'm not one for Christmas movies just in general. Sure, I can see that. <laughs> That's understandable. All right, Sean, it's on you. You've got to bring this thing home. You've got to you've got to shoot us back into the stratosphere of 1989 happiness. What is your final favorite thing from 1989? Be nice. Oh, geez. until it's time not to oh, be nice. Yes, yes. This was this was on my list. I didn't choose it just because we did the commentary on it. But you're not wrong for picking it. Right, that's why I picked it as a quick one, because we've already done an entire episode dedicated to it, and it's none other than Roadhouse, the Patrick Swayze epic. Oh, baby, and how uh, you guys converted me on that, because I, I was not I was not drinking the Roadhouse uh, Kool-Aid, but now I can't get enough of it. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And, and let's be honest, Sam Elliott's hair is uh, worth the price of admission. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're telling me, sister. Uh, Chris, how do you feel about Roadhouse? Uh, or as Peter Griffin would say, Roadhouse. Um, it is... Uh, no one got that joke? No one? No. One? I'm not a big Family Guy uh, guy. I feel about Family Guy like you feel about Cure. I got you. <laughs> there, was, there was an episode where they, they all, all went to a closing video store and DVDs were a dollar and Peter bought Roadhouse and his whole uh, premise of the episode was that he was just going around town beating up everybody who disagreed with him, and then he would say Roadhouse. Sounds about right. So, um, no, I am a fan of Roadhouse. Uh, it's probably the best thing Patrick Swayze's ever done, as far as I'm concerned, because uh, I wasn't really into clay molding with Demi Moore a year later. <laughs> so, yeah, I will take Roadhouse any day. Um, you know, and even though I'm a fan of shitty sequels, you can kind of leave Roadhouse 2 by the wayside. Oof, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the not even out of curiosity. <laughs> Beth Roadhouse, you know you love it. Come on, I um, I ironically love Roadhouse. Yes, it is, it's it is great. absolutely. It's the best Patrick Swayze movie ever. I will never ever ever want to see Dirty Dancing again, but I will watch Roadhouse whenever it's on TV. Shit, yeah. <laughs> there is no better way to close out a podcast than with Roadhouse. So I think it's time to bring it home. But before we go. Uh, I want everybody to let us know where we can find you online and what we're up to. Uh, Chris, where are you online? What are you doing? All right. So Chief Marketing Officer for Figures Toy Company right here. You can find all of our awesome merchandise over at figurestoycompany.com where we carry retro figures for DC Comics, Kiss, The Monkees, The Three Stooges. Uh, We're also licensed by Ring of Honor Wrestling for action figures and merchandise for them. We also do the Legends of Professional Wrestling and the Rising Stars of Wrestling toy lines. We just released a whole bunch of stuff just last week. That includes the Taya Valkyrie figure. Dude, for that the Taya figure Earth. is like up there with Delirious for one of the greatest action figures of all time, I think. That it, it came out so like I I had only seen the prototype of her with like the furry boots, like the outfit with the robe and everything. It is amazing. It's that, that was just a run. They did they did such a great job. And uh, besides that, my favorite new release is uh, the cult favorite, the Creeper from DC Comics. I think yes. that came out really really good. So 
lots of new stuff up there. Black Canary, The Atom, uh, we've got Scooby-Doo, we've got Birdman just came out. A whole bunch of stuff. Check it out at figurestoycompany.com, uh, wrestlingsuperstore.com. You can find all of the wrestling merchandise and more accessories over there. You can follow us on all sorts of social media, Figures Toy Company and Wrestling Superstore. Just seek out the company name on Facebook and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Co and at W-R-E-S underscore Superstore. And if you would like to follow me personally for all my podcast fun and movie reviews, pop culture goodness, and cross-promotion of the things that I'm doing at FTC, I am at Zach Malibu. Awesome. Beth, what up you? Where can we find you? Well, compared to Chris, I do nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me at NeedlessThingsPodcast.com and at NeedlessBeth on Twitter. And at BethRum on Instagram. You should do more on Instagram. Yes, I do nothing on Instagram. I am bad about that. Instagram is the best. It, it, it's the best. Get on Instagram. Do some more. Uh, Red Ranger, what are you up to? Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the Red Ranger. You can find me also on Instagram at Theme Park Alchemy. Uh, that is a shared account, so we take turns. I will be posting some of my adventures at the theme parks next week, or actually this week. Jesus, I'm so thrown off. How does time work? Um, yeah, so that's where you can find me online. Primarily those two places, uh, mostly the Instagram. I avoid Facebook as much as possible. I think uh, Theme Park Alchemy needs to hire. Aziz Ansari uh, to say smelling good 24-7 baby I think that's we your do. that's your ad campaign yeah we do need that that's it Damn. for sure Theme Park Alchemy it is smelling good though I we got our uh, Slytherin candles uh, at our pals who, who are currently in some foreign country doing really weird stuff world uh, travelers but our, our pals Ryan and Nicole uh, get, the, get the nice little Slytherin wedding candles that smell wonderful and I enjoy them from Theme Park Alchemy. We can buy those, right? Yeah, you can. Uh, well, not right now. The site is actually oh, right, while right. Ryan and Nicole are uh, off gallivanting around the globe. Believe it or not, they are not going to be able to send candles from Bangkok. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or make them. Um, that's the tricky part. Uh, we can mail them, but we have to have them. Uh, so, yeah, so the site is down for maintenance uh, for another couple weeks, but we're coming back big, actually, and I should probably just put this over now. Uh, come back big in July with um, uh, a big July 4th release with a very popular Netflix show. And uh, as well as we have the shark bait candle. And so we'll be doing a big 4th of July Jaws as well. So look for a big 4th of July sale coming out uh, I, I, on the 4th of July. I happen to have the MTV Music and Movie as Combined Now awards on in the background and I have a feeling the kids from the thing you just mentioned are on it right now. Yeah, that's uh, there's some good smells that come out of that show uh, from your toaster. Um, oh, man. Lego by <laughs> candle. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Universal, for having them at Halloween Horror Nights <laughs> and expanding the list of properties we can be inspired by. Awesome. Wait, All right. Wait, I, don't, I get a Demogorgon candle. Really? Oh, uh, I don't want anything that I, smells like that. Well, maybe they smell like cotton candy. You don't know. Don't but know. you've already it got a cotton time. candy candle. We'll figure it out. Just relabel it. Oh, now yeah. it's now it's time for for uh, the the old toy industry standard of the redeco. Uh oh yeah, that's believe me. We we are finding ways to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Thank you guys so much for coming on and talking about 1989. Uh, I've had a great time talking to you. I'm sure the listeners have had fun as well. And uh, please check out NeedlessThingsPodcast.com every single day for new posts about all this kind of pop culture goodness. Uh, You guys, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, mark it on your calendar, Sunday, July 14th, 1 p.m., the Georgia World Congress Center, Building C, Room 110, Needless Things, presents The Summer of the Bat. Uh, It's going to be awesome. I've been so excited about this for so long and haven't been able to say anything. So please uh, spread the word. Go to Facebook. Join the Needless Things Podcast Facebook group, and there you will find the event for the Summer of the Bat live panel, and you can join there. Uh, like I said, download the app. I think that's a thing. The Atlanta Comic Con app. If it's not active now, it will be sometime at the beginning of July. And and mark us on that schedule. We need them to know that people want to come out to see needless things. So uh, get on that. Spread the word. Do what you can, and also spread the word about the podcast. If you listened to this episode and you enjoyed it, why not share it? Why not leave some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, Podstagram, Podomatic, Podman, Jackson the Third? I don't, I don't know where people listen to things. I just look it up and click on the play button. Although honestly, all I've been listening to for the last month is the. Uh, major wrestling figure podcast which I'll, I'll go ahead and put it over again i signed up for their patreon which I, I understand yes they're big professional wrestlers who make good money and spend a lot of money on toys and whatever but they are providing the most satisfying patreon content i have ever seen uh it's it's amazing and their show is great and uh you know if you're not into wrestling figures maybe it's not your thing but if you do have an interest, it's it's fantastic. But remember, Summer of the Bat, that's the big news. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh. <laughs>